0: Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn. Harbor still in Amityville, bayonet in Gettysburg. Mothman, TNT, factory, red eyes, low beam. Dog man, Halloween in the street. i typically skeptical of what I see. Voodoo, hoodoo in New Orleans. Thunderbird, Swamp Thing. Is it real? I was wondering. Typical. Skeptic. Show. Typical. Skeptic. Show. We should be recording now. Yeah, it says so on my end. Okay. Hey, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Typical Sceptic Podcast. I have another fascinating guest with me today. Um, I have with me back with me Matt Palamari. He's the author, editor, and shamanic explorer. Matt Palamari's latest book. Um, He has two. He just wrote – he's a very prolific writer. He wrote one It's called Pico Floor. That was the one we talked about last time. And this time we're going to be talking about Holographic Cosmic Man. And he just, he comes up with amazing topics. Uh, let me read to you more about him if I can find his bio here. Oh, yeah. His, uh, he's a San Diego Book Award National Best Award winner and chronicles his ventures throughout the mountains, deserts, jungles of the North, Central, South America, pursuing the studies of shamanism and a visionary experience working with plant medicines, among them ayahuasca, peyote, san Pedro cactus, and many more. He has 16 books in print with multiple genres and has been leading popular fantastic fiction workshop Southern California and Santa Barbara Writers' Conference for over 30 years and frequently lectures about shamanism and writing throughout the United States. Wow. And it's really an honor to have him on my show. And Matt, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank
1: you so much. A little update on my bio. This new book is my 18th book. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And uh, it's no big deal. But my last name, uh, the best way to pronounce it is as And any Palomare is a Palamine.
0: <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's cool. So tell, tell us about your new book. Um, what does holographic, holographic cosmic man mean?
1: Yeah, so it's a play on words. I think I invented a new word. I'm very inspired by the Temple of Anthropocosmic Man, which is in Luxor, Egypt. And the Temple of Anthropocosmic Man is an exact exact mathematical representation of the human body so in every aspect of that temple every arch every piece of art every every temple within the temple every part of it is based on the golden mean and sacred geometry so what the uh, there was a gentleman french by the name of Schwaller de Lubitz And he spent 15 years studying that temple and analyzing. And I think he spent like 12 of them on site and three more doing the analysis. And he came up with a a massive two-volume set called the Temple of Man. And what they say is that it's not only a map of the human body, but it's also a map of the cosmos. So it's a... um, it's the microcosm within the macrocosm. And in my studies of sacred geometry, which I've done quite a bit, um, I realized that the golden mean, but for the listeners who may not know, it's called the divine cut. It's 1.618 is the uh, uh, proportion. I can get into more of that if you want. But um, I discovered that it's the perfect mathematical geometric representation of a hologram. And I realized that Aside from the temple, that the whole human body, the whole experience throughout, and I can get into lots of lots of rabbit holes here, uh, is all based on the golden mean. It goes from the microcosm to the macrocosm. It goes infinitely in both directions. It's the basis of the Fibonacci spiral, which is throughout nature. So I thought anthropocosmic man, which was done, God knows how many hundreds or thousands of years ago. I took a plan on words and kind of updated it so that it's holographic cosmic man,
0: as opposed to anthropocosmic man. And like I said, I think I invented a new word. I love it. I, and this is a little bit above my pay grade, honestly. Like I, I, this is all a learning experience for me, which I also love, but like, but I guess it, to like ask something in layman's terms, what do you think this means about like the human body? Because to me, I've always thought like the human body is like a computer. It, it reminds me of a computer. You have like your brain that like, processes information and your heart kind of like is like your CPU. It keeps the blood running. But like the way you're explaining this is how the golden mean is like how it expresses itself in the natural body and then how the golden and now that lines up to the temple a, that the you talked about. Like, what do you think that means about the human body? Like does it mean that we're a lot more than we think we are obviously, right? Hell yes. By the way, that's a great question. And
1: um stop me if I go on too long, because this is a big topic. Oh, it's but, fine. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So so the golden mean is everywhere throughout the human body and everywhere in nature. It's and it's the basis of most of life as we know it. And not only throughout the human body, but throughout the planet and the cosmos. So one of the things I've been doing with my writing a lot more in recent years and for some time now is to connect science with spirituality. So uh, Rudolf Steiner was famous for that. He's anybody who ever heard of Steiner. He uh, started the Waldorf schools, and I'm also a huge fan of Gurdjieff. If anybody's ever heard of Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff and Uspensky, uh, Gurdjieff was a he was considered a Russian mystic. Um, he was also um, he he was uh, Jung was a bit of a protege of his. But anyway, the golden mean is that 1.618 it's the divine proportion. Just to give you a few examples, and obviously I get way deep into this into the book, but if you look at your finger, this segment to the next segment is the golden mean. That segment to the next segment is the golden mean. That segment to the next segment is the golden mean. If you look at the human body, as an example, the Vitruvian Man by da Vinci, our belly button is the golden mean, it's 1.618. It's also prevalent throughout the geometry of our face, throughout all different proportions of the body. If you study plants, you can see things like um, the the Fibonacci spiral, which is in pine cones. If you look at the face, the seeds, uh, the middle of a sunflower. And generally speaking, obviously there's always Variations and exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, when a plant grows, it grows in what's called phylotaxis. And in phylotaxis, each leaf that comes up follows the Fibonacci spir- uh, spiral sequence, which gives each leaf maximum exposure to sunlight. It's very, very precise. If you look throughout the planet in different relationships with plants and animals and all that, if you look and look and look, it's kind of like when you buy a new car. When, years ago, I bought my new Prius, and suddenly I saw Priuses everywhere on the road, right? So th- this is very similar. Once you start to see it in nature and in the animal and and uh, the human world, you start to see it everywhere. So it's prevalent. And the Fibonacci spiral is um, all over the place, throughout nature, trees, animals, plants. It's also discovered Throughout um, the cosmos, throughout the universe, th- throughout the solar system. So I start, uh, I start from a lot of examples from quantum physics, and then I come up to the human body, and then its place in nature, and then the, and then the planet, and then the planet its place within the cosmos. And I always love to say, you'll appreciate this with your interests and backgrounds. I always love to say that I learned everything I know about sacred geometry from ayahuasca. That's amazing. Then, yeah. Then I went and read the books and followed up with the, with the science and the mathematics and all that. I followed up with that, well, but I really learned it. Can from, I ask you this?
0: This is interesting. Like what it how did, I mean, like, cause I, it's like almost like I, uh, ayahuasca will like talk to you, right? Like it, it tells you things I haven't even done it, but I've heard stories. Like, I mean, I've, I've done more like mushrooms and stuff like that, like, but like, I, you know, and, and LSD, I, I, I mean, I think I tried DMT once, but it didn't work. Like, I, I don't know, but like, what did, how does ayahuasca interact with you? And like, what well, did it tell you? Like, is it, does it have its own consciousness?
1: Yeah. In my humble opinion, in my experience, and we're talking, I hate to sound like the geezer that I am, but I've got over 50 years of experience with psychedelics and altered states, pretty much almost everything I can get my hands on. Um, I probably missed a few here and there. But I even, I knew Sasha Shogun, I did a lot of Sasha Shogun's things, and I discovered over time, especially in the past 10 or 15 years, that I can take mushrooms and go into ayahuasca space. But if you don't know that access point is there, you're not going to know it. What I always like to say, so there there are different things. To me, ayahuasca and mushrooms have their own inherent intelligence. You do something like a MDMA, which is considered an empathogen. I don't consider that to have so much of its own inherent intelligence. And I don't consider LSD to have its own inherent intelligence. Certainly useful. Certainly I had a lot of breakthroughs and spiritual experiences using them in different ways. But for me, ayahuasca mushrooms and also uh, either San Pedro cactus also known as wachuma and peyote. Those all have their own innate intelligences. Now, for me, when ayahuasca speaks to me, it's the voice of Mother Earth. I like to call myself a mama's boy in that respect. Now, here's the thing. How do plants talk to us? Well, you can smell them. You can see them. They have their own pheromones. They have their own communication systems that happens through their roots and through mycelial networks underground and all that. So a plant can smell a certain way to, to attract particular pollinators. Um, it can look a certain way to get our attention, all of those things. How do they talk to us? That, that's sort of um, uh, an external thing. But if you look at the way the mind works, and experience, personal experience, which in the end, shamanism is all about direct experience. Um, If you look at that, so, and if I've said some of this before, uh, forgive my redundancy, I'm I'm hitting my play buttons in my head here for for different little raps. But um, when we go through our everyday, quote unquote, normal waking consciousness, we function left brain, we're using logic, We have to use that part of our brain to function within society. We have to use it to drive our cars, to do mathematics, to form sentences, to do those things that we consider to be logical. That's where we use that part of our brain. Now, when we go to sleep at night, at some point, that part of our brain takes a rest and our right brain comes out to play. And when our right brain comes out to play, it comes out in dreams. And dreams is the feminine side. And by the way, generally speaking, women maybe have a leg up on this compared to most dudes, except uh, I have to say I got a bunch of uh, uh, gay bros. And, And maybe they have a leg up too, because in many respects, they're more in touch with their feminine side. But anyway, when you sleep and you start to dream, you're in a dream You're flying a pink horse with purple polka dots and then you're flying and you're breathing underwater. And, and at that moment, when it's happening in those dreams, it's real to you. You don't question it. You don't question I'm on a pink horse with purple, purple polka dots. You don't question that you're breathing underwater. You don't, you don't question that you're flying, whatever you choose to do. In that moment for you in that moment, that's real. So your right brain comes out to play and it speaks in a visual, conceptual, emotional intuitive language. So it's not serialized. Like right now, you and I are communicating. I'm sitting here and I'm saying one word after the other. You're listening to each one of my words and you're unpacking them inside of your head. And then you're painting your own picture based on what I'm telling you. But I have to speak with you in this way, one word at a time, which is called serial data, by the way. When the right brain communicates, it's multiple, it's more, it's beyond even parallel. It's why intuition is actually superior to logic. So you get spoken in a emotional, intuitional, conceptual type of language. So when you wake up from dreaming, if you're working with your dreams, the first thing you try to do is go, what was that all about? And you try to make sense out of it. You try to, to, you know, unpack it all because that's your left logical brain trying to make sense from the right-hand brain that doesn't follow those strict, you know, rules, you know, uh, positive, negative, good, bad, blah, 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 all of that. So what happens with ayahuasca is that you drink ayahuasca and your right brain gets turned on, but your left brain never goes to sleep like it does in dreaming. So you have, what I call a waking dream—that's one of the the uh, opening chapter of my uh, memoir *Spirit Matters* is called a waking dream. So you're sitting there and you're suddenly bombarded with an experience that's non-rational, that's multiply loaded with dense meaning, that's often alien and confusing because there's emotion behind it, there's intuition, there's those things. And as an aside, the people I've known who are considered to be intellectually centered are the hardest, they have the hardest time trying to deal with the experience. And I was actually in the jungle one time and I had a renowned PhD and he spent the first three ceremonies curled up in my lap in the fetal position because he couldn't handle what was going on because in his mind, he's so intellectually centered and he controlled his reality with his intellect that he was in a place where none of that worked anymore. So for the first time in his life, it was a a mental situation he could not handle. So those are the ones that have had the hardest time. Now, there's a lot of talk about these days about integration specialists and this and that. Well, what integration is, is when your left brain, the logical side, is catching up with what happened on the right side. Because when it happens with ayahuasca and other substances, you've probably experienced this in mushrooms to some degree. The experiences can be so overwhelming, you can't even put them into words. And one of my struggles has been, as a writer, both in fiction and nonfiction, is to take those experiences that are beyond description and do my best to try to describe them so people who don't get to have the experiences that I've had can get a sense of what it's really all about. So one of the things I'm always preaching is you can do an ayahuasca ceremony or a mushroom ceremony or something similar. You can have an epiphany and a great experience and a realization. And a lot of people think, oh, I've had my epiphany, I've had my realization, I'm cured. No, you're not. You've just been shown it for the first time. You've glimpsed it. It's taking what you experience in those altered states, in those non-rational experiences, those quote unquote truths, and then applying them in your everyday life. That's when the real work is done. And a lot of times I say that the time between experiences in many respects is more important than the experiences themselves. Because if you don't walk the walk, you're you're full of it. And there's a, and I, I always I get a little crazy about this, but there's a lot of people out there who have their realizations on psychedelics and altered states, and suddenly they're a guru. And I call that guruitis. That drives me crazy. There's a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about, or they or they 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 put themselves up on a high horse because they think, oh, now I'm enlightened. No, you're not. Anybody who tells you they're enlightened, you should run the other way. You've been shown things and you see things. And when I've done my best work with my writing and in ceremonies, I always like to think of myself. There was a famous shaman called Fool's Crow. I think he was a Sioux shaman. He said, I am a hollow tube. I am a hollow bone. And I open myself up and I let those things come through. But those things are bigger than me. So when I'm really on whether it's writing or whether I'm leading a ceremony or participating, I open myself up and some very, very beautiful, brilliant things come through. And I'm not that smart, it's bigger than me. I can get myself out of the way and let it flow through and that's the real work. So people say to me, oh, you know, you worked with me with mushrooms, you worked with me ayahuasca when you healed me. And I go, no, I didn't, you healed you. I can help you point the way, I can show you some guidance, things I can do to help facilitate, but the work is on you. I I can't heal anybody. Nobody can heal anybody but ourselves. So that's important. But anyway, to kind of come back full circle on this, that language that the ayahuasca speaks is different from quote unquote, the normal language that we know every day. And I consider it to be the voice of mother earth. And in the jungle, um, ayahuasca is, is considered to be the mother of all the other plants. And when I've done it in the jungle, and I recently did my thirteenth, ten-day ayahuasca dieta. When you do it in that way, you work with the ayahuasca and you work with a whole number of other plants, and you literally become one with the jungle. So it's a very complex thing. So um,
0: interesting, like that, that, that's so interesting. Like I, I mean, like I, I I'd love to know, like what, what you're seeing, like I mean, like and and are you communicating with like what we would we would think is another world like i mean to to say it in layman's terms like is it another world like is it like otherworldly like you know because i'll tell you like my experience on mushrooms was like you know it was like real emotional i remember like i I don't know if that was just because like that was like the the state i was in but like for some reason like i started thinking about like death and i started thinking about like everybody around me is gonna die and it was like real emotional like you know yeah. and I, I don't know if that was like something i needed to feel to get more in touch with my reality you know what i mean maybe i, I that's still the only thing i can think of it but um that, that was what i felt so i've never felt otherworldly but like why do you think that happened to me and like do, if i did ayahuasca is it going to make me feel like in another reality kind of or are you, what are you communicating with like what do you because you know how people say they they communicate with the goddess when they do ayahuasca like yeah, what, 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 what is that? What do you, I, I, I
1: that's a lot on back. Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so, I'm going to steal a little bit from Terrence McKenna here. Your your brain is like a radio receiver. And if anybody knows anything about radio, you'll have a transmitter that's transmitting at a particular frequency. Let's say, for argument's sake, it's one hundred one point one FM that's what the transmitter, that's the frequency that the transmitter is uh, transmitting at. If you tune the radio that you have to that same frequency, 101.1, you're going to hear what the transmitter is putting out. So in my experience, when you drink ayahuasca, you put yourself into a frequency that is also accessible to plants and animals and other people, um, Within the ceremony, one of the things that drew me to ayahuasca way back when I was first researching it years and years ago was the the active component was called telepathine. And when I heard that, I was like, sign me up. I want to know about that. I want to try that. So uh, as an example, when you do the 10-day dieta, the boundaries between your conscious and your subconscious become blurred and you get physically weaker as the days go on, but your subconscious material comes up. Much of that subconscious material is suppressed emotional material, sometimes the core of it, because it goes way back to our roots and it actually goes back to instinct. So as an example, in my case, um, I had no feminine. I grew up in Boston in a neighborhood called Dorchester where Marky Mark Wahlberg is from. He's younger than me. And, um, you know, I saw that
0: movie, the fighter, that was, that was a good movie. The fighter about that, about, um, about, uh, Oh man, who's that boxer? I'm trying to think of it. Yeah. He fought, um, he fought, uh, Oh man, it's my my uncle would know. Like, I, it's it's an amazing movie. Marky Mark plays the guy and his brother and they're from, they're from that area. And like, um, that's just an amazing movie. I love fighting. I, I'm a big, I'm a big guy. Uh, oh, you know, I'm, have, I'm like you, I wasn't, I wasn't raised with much of a feminine side either. Like I, I, uh, you know, I was always into like martial arts, and, fighting yeah, me too. and like, you know, like I, I, it's, I, I, in sports, you know, like, you know, yeah. I'm always like, it's kind of like where I, where I, I, I grew up my whole life, you know? Yeah. I, I trained in martial arts
1: for years. I was a street fighter. I went into martial arts to learn how not to, really mess up people yeah that that movie christian bale was in it and that that was actually took place in worcester uh which is another part of massachusetts but it's very similar to where we grew up in dorchester um which is right near downtown boston so um anyway I, i was that way and so my feminine was non-existent i went for 30 years without ever crying And it wasn't like, I'm not going to cry. There was just nothing there. And then when I started working with ayahuasca, that repressed emotion, that repressed femininity, which was part of my shadow, came out. And I had a couple of years of getting really, really emotional over the weirdest things. And then once that kind of balanced out more, my intuition went, Went way up, and I became more balanced because I was now starting to work with parts of myself that I had repressed. So, more often than not, we do repress emotions. Um, They go deeply back to instinct. You know, I can walk down the street and see a beautiful woman and go, I want her, right? But if I were to really go after her, I'd probably end up in prison because, from society, that's unacceptable, like that doesn't mean the instinct's not there. So you have to recognize it. And instead of uh, denying it or abandoning it or finding it, let it flow, let it take you over, and then examine it and find out, well, where did that come from? And where's that been hiding? And and, and you find over time that the more you accept those uh, abandoned parts of yourself, because that's what they are, they're abandoned. And once you accept those, You'll find that situations in your life that used to really upset you and drive you crazy, they don't affect you anymore. They lose your emotional charge because you've embraced that part of yourself. So in the end, it's all about acceptance. And when you accept those parts of yourself like that, you'll discover that some people that have been in your life will fall out. New people will come into your life. And you do um, a recalibration. So kind of circling back to your original uh, question there, when you drink ayahuasca, you get into that state of mind that's a particular vibration. I think of it as multiple realities or multiple dimensions. What is the energy of it? If I were to say to you, um, oh, I don't know, uh, that guy pissed me off and I kicked his ass, You could say that I was possessed by the spirit of anger because there is that particular kind of energy. So when you do this work and you start to be exposed to energies that you may have denied or were not necessarily there before, you become aware of those energies and you start to cultivate them and you start integrating them into your everyday experience. And it broadens your perception because you're now more aware than you were before because you weren't caught up in some sort of negative or dark or, or or semi-conscious or unconscious pattern. So in the end, it's all about acceptance. And when you accept all of those things, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make them always right, but they're trying to do the best. So when you accept them within yourself, it reflects in your outer world, and you become um, more balanced and more complete. And it gets back to the uh, holographic cosmic or anthropocosmic man because if indeed there is a divine creator or uh, spirit or divine thing, everything, whatever you want to call it, spirit, the universe, then it's in us. It's inside of us and we're inside of it. And you can go infinitely deep within And you can go infinitely far out. In fact, I always like to say, if you go far enough in, you end up out. And I always like to say, if you go far enough left, you're going to end up to the right and vice versa. So it's about exploring and expansion and learning to cultivate it. So when you take ayahuasca or mushrooms or something like that, you're tuning into that radio station, so to speak, that frequency. And that frequency in the lore of the jungle and in my own personal experience Is also being shared by different other plants and different animals. So every time you take in a different plant, you take in a particular kind of energy. If you drink coffee and you get buzzed on caffeine, you just altered your consciousness and you've just created a different kind of energy. Smoke some weed, something different. You know, even just waking up in the morning from dreaming to waking to sleeping, those are all different states of consciousness. And in our society, we tend to separate them. But indigenous cultures, there's no difference between sleeping and waking and dreaming and visions. They're just all um, a continuum.
0: They're I was going to say, I, I got a question about that. Like, it, yes, sir. I didn't mean to go off pass. Of course, no, no. I just like, I've always asked people on this show, like everybody that comes on, when we talk about dreams, I say, Do you feel like that's another reality. So let me just explain, like I've had dreams where, you know, I'll, I'll be dreaming for eight hours, like a normal eight hour sleep. But in that dream, I'll be on a farm. I'll have, I'm just saying, this is an example. I'm not, this isn't my, you know, in the dream, I'll I'll be on a farm and I'll have a whole life and I'll know people that I don't know in this world. And I'm, and it's somehow I'm like interacting with these people. Or like if I'm having sex with a girl, you can smell her perfume. Or if you fall, you can feel the fall. Or if you, if someone has bread in the oven, you can smell the bread. So what's so different about that reality than this reality? Except like, (laughs) it's so weird. Like when you, this is crazy to say. I, again, we were saying this on a podcast, but Art Bell said it once too, so I don't feel that bad. When you have sex in a dream, it never, it never completes. I, I'll say that the nicest way I can. But, so that's weird, right? But, but like thinking about the dream space, like I wonder why that is. You know, it's so
1: from, in my in my experience. And by the way, everything I say is all my own universe. So. Everything I say and everything I write is an offering. People can take it or leave it. I'm not going to argue with anybody. But in my experience, in my research and all that, um, in shamanism, everything is energy. Everything. So I can't change what's happening in Ukraine. I can't change murderers or mental illness or the weather. I can't change any of that but I can certainly change how I interpret it and how I create it in my mind based on all that external input that I get through, through my sensory input and other things. I can control that. So when you learn to navigate numerous altered states, those visionary and dreaming experience, they start to flow into your everyday waking life and your waking life flows into your dreams and as I mentioned a little while ago, when you're in those dreaming experiences, they're real to you. You don't question them. So those are the rules of that reality. So if I'm deep off flying through the cosmos in an ayahuasca journey and I'm getting bizarre, sometimes alien or colorful or things that that are beyond description in, in the quote unquote physical world that we know, that's real to me when it's happening and I'm learning to navigate it. So I've been in situations in my life where I don't think I would have survived if I hadn't had the experience of navigating the altered states that I did and all the experiences that I've had. So a big part of shamanism is learning to navigate altered states no matter what it is. And if you, over time, I'm sort of being redundant here, but over time, my dreams and my visions and my waking state have all flowed into each other. And... My waking state has become more dreamlike because no matter what anybody says, all we have is the moment. Right now, you and I are hanging out. We're connecting online. We're having this moment. But when we finish this interview and we hang up and go our separate ways, it doesn't exist anymore. It's recorded and people will be able to tune in and listen and and watch and all that. But the moment's gone. Poof, it's gone. So it really makes all these things that we think are solid in our life, solid physical things, they're really just temporary. I've had lots of different, over the years, I've owned different houses and cars and all that, they're all gone now. I've been in relationships, they're all gone now. They're all like different um, eras or even different movies, different uh, parts of my life. But what's real is right now, in the moment. It's, it's a cliche in a bit, but but uh, that's what's real. So when you're in that space and you're experiencing it and you're interpreting it, the meaning is then and now. So as I said, you, you can be dreaming and in a vision and it doesn't matter what's going on anywhere else. And that moment for you is real in that moment. And that's all there really is in the end. But of course, infinity is in the moment, right?
0: Yeah, uh, It's Strange. It's, this world is definitely strange. It's a, it's a strange world we live in. Like, it's uh it, it, makes me. I, I have so many questions about what our reality really is. When you say the holographic cosmic net, do you think that we like this? I don't know if you, you got into this much in the questions you, you sent me, but like, this is my big question. Do you think we live in some kind of like, I'm going back to the book, the holographic universe by Michael Talbot. And like, yeah, a lot of yeah. people that are talking about simulation theory are it's like a hot topic. Maybe. Like, do you think we live in some kind of simulation? But I mean, here's what's, I th- if, it, if you ask me, I think it's some kind of biological simulation because we're very biological, right? Like everything about us is very real. You know like i don't i i mean like i know that when people study like the holographic universe they say that we have things in our eyes that tell us what's real and what's not and that you know things are just made up of particles and that that's really like my desk and my computer is not really solid i guess in the holographic unit universe concept it, it would be like you know but to me it feels solid like it, it feels real so like going back to what i said i don't know if i'm making any sense but like or do you you think we live in some kind of simulated reality or do you think there's a creator or what what are your thoughts on what our world really is? We are the creators.
1: If, if the universe is everywhere, the universe is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And we possess the ability to be self-reflective. So we're the witnesses to it. And if it is indeed everywhere at the same time, then it's inside of us, and everything that we see around us is a reflection of that. There's a tied in with the the temple there and all of that, and an ancient shamanic belief is that our heart is the center of our being, and it's the giver of life. For I mean, you know, the lungs, every they all do their part, but the heart is considered the center. And the heart actually has a greater density of synapses and neurons than the brain does. In fact, there's a whole expression about the heart being a mini brain and all of that. But in shamanism, our heart is connected to the sun that is at the center of our solar system. And the sun that is at the center of our solar system gives energy unconditionally. If you look at it from strictly a matter perspective, the two highest elements, the two highest frequencies, fastest moving elements are hydrogen and helium. That's the beginning of matter as we know it, the highest ones that we know. And that's what the sun is made up of, pretty much hydrogen and helium. So because it gives its energy unconditionally, life as we know it on the earth is possible. If it didn't give off that energy unconditionally, life as we know would not be possible. So in shamanism, the heart that is at the center of our being is connected to the sun that is at the center of our solar system, which is connected to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, all the way back to source. But it's fascinating when you look at it because it's giving off its energy unconditionally. And what's the big buzzword in spirituality and all that stuff is unconditional love. And there's a beautiful uh, little saying from uh, Hafez, 13th century Sufi mystic, if I remember right. And he says, um, even after all this time, the sun never once says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. So if you look at it, strictly from an energetic perspective we're connected in that way and the the primary example is the sun that gives off its energy unconditionally that allows life to be and if you go further and and explore and you realize that if your heart is like that then everybody else's heart is like that and we're all part of the same thing which gets back to the whole holographic idea and the whole the whole uh yoga thing of namaste. Namaste is to I bow to the light within you. And when um, I bow to the light that is within you, I'm bowing to the light that is within me, because we're all part of that same light. And if you want to take that further, and you look at your human body as a microcosm of the macrocosm as its own self-contained cosmos, and you think of the trillions of cells that, that, that make us up, And the fact that the toenail cell knows what to do, which is different from what the liver cell or the heart cell or the brain cell does, they all have their own individual functions. And yet they're all have given up their individuality. They've created more of it, but they also have given it up in support of the whole because we wouldn't even be existing as a human if they weren't all cooperating the way they do. And the levels of cooperation are mind boggling. You know, the the fact that we breathe unconsciously in our heart and our body temperatures at a very specific place, all of that. So if you look at that and you look at yourself as a microcosm, as a map of the cosmos, then you realize that you are part of divinity, you are divinity, and you are the witness to creation, no matter what it is, whether it's physical going on in the world or whether it's a dreaming state or a visionary state, you know, under the influence of a plant or something. You are there and you're witnessing it. So if you are indeed that manifestation of that thing and the proof is in your own self-reflection and you see it in other people, then it allows you to really love yourself and love more people. And even though when I sometimes, sometimes, you know, I, I, I love cannabis. I've been smoking it most of my life. But sometimes I'll take six months off or a year off and I get too dependent on it. It helps with my writing. Maybe smoking it isn't the best thing for me, sometimes. But I'm conscious about taking it into my body. And everything that goes into my body, I consider to be an offering to divinity. And if my body is indeed the temple of man, and I'm making everything I take in to be an offering to divinity, then not only am I offering it to myself, but I'm offering it to the entire cosmos. And when I look at other people and and catch myself and, you know, work hard not to judge people and have compassion for them, ultimately I'm having compassion for myself because we're all reflected. We're all living in the same, similar way. We're all going to leave this plane of existence as far as we know it and move on to God knows where, but that's part of the great mystery.
0: Um yeah it, it's 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 where this life is a mystery it's like it's one big mystery right and for for us seekers but there's people like you and me i mean there's people that go live their everyday life and they don't question their reality and i just don't understand how they can live like that i i just haven't ever been ever since i went down the first rabbit hole about ancient history which was i found out about you know that they the anunnaki were like you know might came here and seated man and that that mm-hmm. like really triggered me to start going down some rabbit holes and like since I've never been able to I've never been able to go back to a normal life you know I just want questions that have answers about the afterlife Mm -hmm. about about psychic phenomena about this psychedelics you know I want to know about it all so I guess there's people I get to say like people like you and me the seekers who want to know more about this big mystery of life and why it is the way it is. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's it's fascinating. It really is. One thing yeah. I wanted to ask you about. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I can go on a whole riff on that if you want, but if you want to ask another question, go ahead. Well, I wanted to go over some of the questions you put. because They're really interesting. What, what One thing you put was what, what is non-locality and Einstein's spooky action at a distance? I think that kind of relates to what we're saying.
1: Yeah, that's always fascinated me. So in essence, I'm paraphrasing here, but in non-locality, if you split an atom and it has a particular spin on it, regardless of the the time and the distance between that split atom, the spin on one electron will match the spin on the other electron, regardless of time or space distance. So, and that's what, that's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. That's further proof. If if, there, if you alter the spin on one and it alters the spin on the other one, that's God knows how far away in time and space, they must be connected. So that whole phenomenon transcends our traditional view of time and space because it actually bypasses time. And I like to think a lot of times that visionary experience transcends our normal conception of time. And if you think about time, our mind has to take things in an order in order to comprehend it. This event, that event, that event, this event might provoke 10 more mental events. And that's one of the reasons why ayahuasca and other experiences can be so overwhelming because you get all those things at the same time and normal linear time doesn't really apply. So the other fascinating thing which kind of ties in with this in terms of quantum physics is the whole uh, wave and particle conundrum is it a wave or a particle the answer is yes because if you look at it as a wave that's energy a wave is energy it's up and down it's up and down it's up and down that's what a wave is is energy it's an oscillation it's a frequency As soon as you stop to look at it, the fact that you observe it changes it. And in your observation, it becomes a particle because you're observing it. So at that point, it's no longer a wave. It becomes a particle. But you can't predict where the particle is going to be. That's why all that quantum physics and all those formulas have to do with probabilities. This is where we think it's going to be. And it's all predictions. But as soon as you go to observe it, and in your mind, in your mind, in your thoughts, you change it from energy into what you think is solid being a particle. All bets are off. The measure, the measurements don't matter. So they're, they're mutually exclusive. And yet, for me, they're one and the same. That's
0: so interesting. This is also interesting. Um, and then... I'll do maybe one more question. Um, okay. when you talked about the golden meat okay okay, what about the, the, the differences in ancient Egyptian through thought between art, science and mathematics? That's that's a good one I think.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, so in our culture, Western culture, so to speak, there is art, there is science and uh, what was it, art, science, and mathematics, right? In Egyptian culture, they're all one and the same. If you look at all of the Egyptian art, everything throughout the Temple of Man and other Egyptian art, it's all, for the most part, in those eras, are based on the golden mean. So if you look at the golden mean and you study sacred geometry, and, you know, that includes the flower of life and Fibonacci spirals and, and, you know, Gosh, pentagons and dodecahedrons, all of those functions have their own innate perfection. So the Egyptians saw that as proof of divinity, because in the end, if you really go throughout it, there's a perfection to it all. So when you see all that, and in their perspective, the mathematics and the geometries and the artwork that it inspires are all divinely inspired. So they see it as all one and the same. They, they don't separate it. Just like indigenous cultures do not separate dreaming and visions and waking. It's all just one continuum. In Egyptian thought, um, those things are all one and the same. The the art and the math, it's all the same, beautiful perfection, no matter which way you look at it. And as a matter of fact, they did they've they've done studies and research and um. At the time, it may have shifted now over a little time, but they did analysis of what was considered to be the most beautiful faces that humanity reflects. And at the time, um, it was Elizabeth Hurley, the the beautiful English actress. And they did an analysis of her face and found out that the, the geometry on it was pretty much perfect. And there's a whole science around plastic surgery where a number of plastic surgeons use sacred geometry of the facial features in order to come up with what's considered to be the perfect perfect facial features.
0: They call that the golden it, ratio, right? Yeah,
1: the golden ratio is the golden mean, the divine cut. They're all the same thing. It's, they're all the same, Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's all 1.618 and it's a proportion. So it doesn't matter whether you're using inches or feet or meters or it doesn't matter. It's that it's the proportion of it. Um, and like, as you, I like to see, look, even you look at it, if you're interesting, when you look at it, the, the fact that the bell, our belly button is at the 1.618 portion of our body. And that's what gives us life when we're in the womb. That's where it all comes from. Um, so, Even uh, in in ancient uh, Greek thought, I think Plato said, truth and beauty are synonymous. I love that because when you look at a perfect geometric figure, there is a beauty to it. And it, it represents a truth and it's a visual thing. So the other thing I realized through all this writing and research is that geometry, particularly sacred geometry, is a universal language. You can speak Mongolian or Russian or or any type of Chinese or any kind of language. And you can look at a geometric figure and totally grasp it just by looking at it. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's one of the primary languages that um, you get spoken to in visionary experiences, particularly with ayahuasca when you see the beautiful unfolding geometrics. You know, Terrence McKenna called them uh, self-transforming machine elves, right? But when yeah. you look at those things, you just got to look at it, and it doesn't matter what language you speak, you can see the perfection in it.
0: That's amazing. This, is, this, is, this has been fascinating. This is. I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we finish up for today? Uh, a couple
1: of things really quick, because we're talking about dimensionality and frequencies. Okay. Okay. So here's one of my little favorite little raps. Thinking strictly in terms of dimensionality, right? Straight up 3D, 4D, whatever dimensionality. In geometry, a point where it all begins has no dimension. There's no dimension to a point. The next thing you do is you move a point and you create a line. That's movement from one point to the next. That is a line. A line is considered to be the first dimension. Boom. If you take that line and you and you exist within that line like this, all you see are points. If you take that next permutation, you take that line, and you move that, then you have a plane. A plane is considered to be the second dimension. If you exist within that plane, within that second dimension, all you see are lines. So then if you take that plane, two dimensional, and you move it again, you have the third dimension. You have a cube, three dimensions, length, width, and height. But if you exist within those three dimensions, all you see are two dimensions. You only see planes. So following that progression of dimensionality, the fact that we perceive everything in three dimensions means that we are actually four-dimensional beings. And there's a lot of speculation these days with the thinning of the veil and the changing and all the wonderful, wild, crazy, good, bad things that are going on in the world that maybe we're getting to the point of going into the fifth dimension or as the Hopi would say, the fifth world if that's the case and we go if we were if we end up transitioning to some sort of fifth dimension we're going to transcend time as we know it so i always like to leave that the last two little things i'll plug is um my website M-A-T-T-P-A-L-L-A-M-A-R-Y.com, mattpalmary.com and i have i will have this podcast with you up there and the other one i did with you is there so i have podcasts and audio and video lectures TV, radio, all this kind of stuff that's on there. And I also have Mystic, Inc. Publishing, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G dot com. All my books are there. But they're also available on Amazon. Um, many of my books, all of my books are e-books and tree books, and a lot of them are also audio books. So that's all there. Um Man, so people this was are, awesome.
0: Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. You asked good questions. This was the, I love, I love exploring the, the nature of reality with you because you, you always make me think, like, wow, this is, this was amazing. <laughs> but It's really, you're on another level, man. You really are. You're, you know, you're, oh, bless you're, you're you really are. Well, thank you. And we'll have to do it again.
1: I'm at your service, uh, bro. Just reach out uh, when you want me. You know me. You just got to hit the on button. You'll have to rein me in at some point, right? Um, yeah. But you, you, you have a good you have a good show here. You ask really great questions. You provoke me in the best way. I live for that. Um and I appreciate all your good words and, and your support. But
0: thank you. I appreciate dude. I, I really this was awesome. Thank you. And uh yeah. and, and-